Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit BroadwayBullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all, it is live. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 117. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and uh, we're on a roll. We have another really great episode for you. We've got two of the new cast members from The Spelling Bee. We've got a Tony nominee and another co-star from Radio Golf to talk all about the show and working with the late August Wilson. We have got two great comedians with The Jap Show playing off-Broadway in New York. And we've got the creator and an actor from the Cabaret musical, around the world in a bad mood. Plus, Marty gives some Tony musings and a whole lot more. So it's going to be a real fun episode. I think we should just kind of plow right ahead, shall we? The Broadway Shuffle. At the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Game I'll stand when they announce my name Leaf Coney Bear And try and keep from shaking The 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee has just passed its second anniversary and a new cast just came in on April 17th. With us today we have two of those members, Jenny Barber and Stanley Bohorek. Hi there. Hi. How are you guys doing? <laughs> Great. Good. So one thing that really interested me about both of you with the show is you've taken kind of, you're both making your Broadway debut with the show, yeah. and you've both taken the route of, you've done a couple of regional productions of Spelling Bee before moving here into the New York production. Yeah. Yeah, we both, uh, in uh, January of 2006, right, mm-hmm. uh, we rehearsed, uh, we were the first national company before they even had the tour, we were the national company, um, and we... Uh, opened the show in San Francisco and did that for seven months and then mm-hmm. went to Boston and did that for three months. Um, and then um, we had a few months off and then uh, they decided to bring us to New York. So we've done it for about a year now. So how did you kind of find out about the, the regional situations to get involved? Was it? I read about it online that there was going to be a production in San Francisco and I happened to be in L.A. when they were auditioning on the West Coast for the actors for the show, and I think I had heard that they were trying to cast it from the West Coast, so I just uh, went to an audition while yeah. I was out there. I actually got it from, uh, it was an agent submission. They brought a lot of people from, they saw on the West Coast over to New York to kind of meet with the creative team, and they kind of supplemented with some people from New York, so I got really lucky to be seen in that group. Okay, so you were in L.A. and you were in New York yeah. out of this, mm-hmm. but you both went to college together originally. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> we both we... went to the University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. So was it odd that you ended up working together again after that? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I was... We heard through a professor, uh, yeah. somebody who taught both of us when we... I. Did I call you first? I don't yeah, remember. you called me. I called It was like our... over like Christmas break, and yeah. and I had gone to Ohio for a little bit. We're both from Ohio as well. Um, yeah. And he called and was like, do you know we're going to be in a show together? <laughs> <laughs> Again? <laughs> Again? It was so funny. It was great. Yeah, I'm we so thrilled. happy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I gotta stop making fun of Ohioans. That's like ah! my, that's like my Uh-oh. default state that I just mentioned when I mentioned tourists on the oh, show. It's no. not, I shouldn't do that. But. Well, most of the creative team is actually originally from Ohio, except for Bill Fenn. But um, James Pine is from Ohio. Um, our music directors from Ohio. Associate, associate resident, resident director. directors from Ohio. So 
A lot of Ohioans. <laughs> so how is it for you making your Broadway debut? You guys having fun? It's fantastic. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. The one thing about this show is, you know, because the I, I, maybe it's partly because the original cast also very much participated in the creating of the characters. Yeah. There are a lot of real distinctive character traits in the, mm -hmm. in the show. And I noticed that, you know, there were definitely a lot of liberties in you guys taking some new things on with the characters, but also still incorporating some of the really kind of crucial things that were to the characters. How much freedom did you have? How hard was that, you know, trying not to imitate you know, but to take on some of these traits that were important? Well, when we initially started in New York, they were very supportive of our having our own take on the characters. We brought in pictures of ourselves when we were 10, 11, 12, and they didn't have us see the, the production in that was still, obviously, running in New York. They just let us play around, yeah. and they talked to us. We talked about that a lot, that, you know, the that they had created a lot of these characters from themselves, from their own lives. So we were to just take what was on the page and then bring it to life, sort of, which was great. It was great. Yeah, and um, definitely from our own uh, experiences, how we were at that age and, and taking, um, sort of seeing the character through who we were. Um, and I think that has been the most successful uh, kind of way of going about it as opposed to sort of imitating. But it, it's right. hard not to. But I think when we were being out of town for so long was really great because it was just, you know, the nine of us and we could really... Um, really Work create together. together like what our company was going to be like and it was really great especially to come to New York and feel like we had so many months of so much um, just getting to know our characters and getting to know one another and trusting one another on stage it felt like a real family coming into it some shows say that there's really no difference between regional and New York audiences and then other shows notice a dramatic shift um, especially with the audience interactive part of the show I'm wondering if you see a difference between the audience reaction outside of New York and versus here? Huh. There was definitely a significant difference between a San Francisco theater audience and a Boston Absolutely. audience. Absolutely. That was a big shift. But what here, kind of were some of the reactional differences? Well, also the spaces have been completely different that we played in, which changes it dramatically. Uh, in San Francisco, we were in... They were all been about the same number of seats, but the the audience was a little bit further away from us in San Francisco. It wasn't that they were reserved, but they just sort of were. They were waiting for us to kind of lead know, the way. Lead the way. And then in Boston, it, it was they were much closer to us, yeah. and so they were a little bit more yeah. rowdy, a little more raucous, like, riding the wave with us. Yeah. But then finally, when we come to New York, the, the theater obviously, since it's in the round, and there are people sitting right. <laughs> in <Next> your nose. You. <laughs> they're actually sitting right there. Uh, that's completely different. They're, 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 you know, they're, we, I think we had to adjust to make some things a little more subtle. You know, mm -hmm. they, they get the jokes a lot, a lot quicker. Yeah, and I think also uh, the audiences in San Francisco weren't really aware of the show. You know, in San Francisco, they sort of have their own things going on there. Sure. And so they sort of came to sort of, they were curious about the show. Whereas in Boston, you know, it kind of had a bit of a start there. Um, and then with the Bill East Finn Coast being from Boston, knew about the, show. the East Coast knew about the show. They were ready to come to laugh. They were ready to sort of um, interact. Whereas in San Francisco, they weren't sure. And at the end, you kind of had to win them over. But it was difficult. It was, it was a little difficult right at the beginning. But um, also, the spellers in San Francisco, I have to say, were, were better. They were really good. <laughs> I mean, they got some hard... We had two national spellers um, 
who, I mean, we, in, in general, I think. Uh, and they were wackier, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe they were just crazy. They were people. just wacky. They weren't nervous on stage. They were so happy to be up there, and they were just rolling off those words. <laughs> There were a lot of Coney Bear. Coney Bear belongs in San Francisco. <laughs> he was from The Hate, right? Yeah. When we mm-hmm. did it. Mm-hmm. Smoking a bowl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you actually even get the audience involved in choreography on the thing. Have you ever yeah. had a, ever had an audience member kind of not willing to get in line with the, the choreography? <laughs> we had one person who, unfortunately, had um, uh, he had a fake leg. A and leg. a prosthetic leg, and he. And the worst part was he tripped. He coming tripped on coming stage. on stage and fell, and it was horrible. And we awkward. actually had to sort of. Luckily, he not luckily, but I mean, he spelled his first word wrong, so he got out. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't have to participate in the choreography, but that was unfortunate. And we've had some people who are, you know, sort of um, getting along in years. Overly excited people. <laughs> oh people yeah. Who, Oh, you're throwing in some kicks and some <laughs> <You're> dancing. <laughs> they want to, you know, they want to become choreographers they themselves. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, I guess one last thing. I just always think it's interesting when you got audience, you know, participation and all the chants that goes into it. The female always makes comments about the characters as they step up to the microphone. Right. Yes. And I'm wondering if, you know, any of the comments she's made about audience members have ever cause an audience member to not be in on the joke with it, if they've gotten upset at what's been said, or... Very rarely, Very but... Rarely. I, mean, I can remember, like, once or twice where the audience and the stage collectively winces. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I, everyone's really pretty good sports about it. Yeah. I mean, everyone's really great. And our Rona Lisa Pretties, uh, whether Jen Samard or when we had Betsy Wolf, they're pretty, um, really tasteful about oh, yeah. about it. You know, they're very careful. And people are ready to sort of I mean they're they're warned that, you know, there's gonna say they're they may make fun of you a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> but everyone's been pretty good about it. Backing up a little bit to uh where you mentioned that you both went to uh university together. Yeah. That was Michigan? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, to University of Michigan or yes. University of Michigan, University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Mm-hmm. We were a couple years apart. Yeah. Like two, two, two years. Two years. Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. a senior when you were a sophomore. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what do you guys feel was the best thing about the program that prepared you for going into this? That's an interesting question. I think uh, the program gave us, well, gave me um, the freedom to sort of discover who who I was as an actor. You know. Um, there's certain things you can't really change about yourself. You know, your height, your um, the way you look, the um, your the way you sing, whatever. Um, and I really felt like it gave me the freedom to sort of develop who I was as a person. And um, uh, I lost my train of thought. Yeah, well, I'll try pick up from pick up, pick up. <laughs> I like the liberalness of the education. It's a huge yeah. university, and I took a lot of classes outside of the theater training. So you know that helps to hopefully make you more of a well-rounded person, but um, just great teachers. Great teachers. You know, great acting teachers. Anybody particularly want to shout out? Mark Mark Madama. (laughs) We love you. He was our... uh, There's an acting for musical theater course, two Mm. courses that... Or one or two? I can't remember, one. Yeah. Uh, And he he teaches that. Yeah, and of course, Brent Wagner, who was the chair of the program, who is just so fantastic and so... Gave us a lot of opportunities. ...generous with... um, how, how his his intelligence and what he has to offer to all the students. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so how long are you slated to stay in Spelling Bee here? Uh, into next year. Yeah. At least. So. Yeah. Any ideas for what you guys would like to accomplish afterwards? 
the world. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> Just trying to live in the moment. Yeah, exactly. Enjoy this great, great thing. Exactly. Well, I thank you guys for stopping down right before Absolutely. your performance. And uh, Stanley, I understand you're actually going on stage crippled today. Here. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, fall during the show, not to spoil any surprise, and occasionally I guess I fall too hard. <laughs> He's fine. He ran two miles this morning with me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your run. And uh, again, thanks so much for coming down and speaking with our listeners. Thank you. August Wilson has always been known for his playwriting that actors can really dig their chops into, and his tenth and final work proved no different with uh, the show receiving two acting nominations. We have Tony nominee John Earl Jelks, and we also have James Williams here with us, who should have been nominated. How are you you guys doing? (laughs) We're doing good, man. Doing well, doing well. No, it, it went where it was supposed to go. Uh, Tony and John have a long history with August, and uh, both of them went through some amazing journeys to get here. So I am just pleased to be a part of it, and I support my fellow cast members any way I can. Thank you, man. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I understand that you've been, both of you have been through this since the very beginning, and quite a long road with Radio Golf. Yes, yes. Uh, From the conception, from uh, Yale, we started in 2005, and um, made a, a few stops. Los Angeles, <laughs> Seattle, uh, I, I think Baltimore. I, I think I figured it out that in, in 2007 I've been in ho- at home in Minneapolis for two days. Yeah. So and uh, over the period of time over the last two years, I think I've, we've we've been in New York is the eighth city, and uh, it's just been a marvelous journey. Yeah, it's been long. It's been long, but very rewarding because we needed those stops to really dig into the material and be able to um, get everything out of it. You know, because it's so rich, the material is so rich, there's so much in it. You have all the nine plays inside of this one play, but it's like it's either a line here or, or a jester or something, you know what I mean? But it's all in this, this play. Yeah, for the listeners who, for some reason, may have been in a cave and don't know, he wrote a play for each decade chronicling the black experience in America, and this is the for 1997, and in a lot of ways it really kind of ties a lot of threads from all around all the different plays, and, and Esther, you finally find out who she is yeah, in yeah. the whole thing, and I know that, John, you've done some other stuff of August Wilson's. Yeah, I was in Jim the Ocean, where you actually had a chance to see on Esther physically. You know, I played the character of uh, uh, Citizen Barlow. They went on the, the, to the City of Bones. That's the same on Esther they um, basically speak about in Radio Golf. Well, no, she actually passed it on to Black Mary, which is actually uh, Barlow's and Citizen. Citizen Barlow and Black Mary's child. Oh, Joe. Yeah, I had to make sure I got that all that tied up. But, you know. Um, but, the, but Jim the Ocean, like I said before, it was uh, the first time you actually had a chance to see what on um, Esther to look like and hear her and to hear her stories. Now, James, is this your first August Wilson show? Oh, or no, 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 so no, no. This is uh, my sixth of the ten. And then I had the pleasure of being in Mr. Wilson's first professional production at Penumbra Theater in St. Paul, Minnesota. We did 
the August Wilson musical, Black Bart and the Sacred Hills. Wow, this is the original. <laughs> so if you were in his first production, how come it took you so long to make your Broadway debut? Because um, you are making your debut with this, Yes, right? it is. It's my debut, uh, and I thank Mr. Wilson for that. Family situations, I'm a proud father. My son is 35 years old. I was a father when I was 17. When I first came to New York to do uh, an off-Broadway show, I made him a promise that I would be back for him to graduate from high school. And uh, as much as I wanted to stay with you guys that time, I went back and honored that. Uh, the second time I came, I, I got brought in to do the last three months of the run of Jitney down at Union Square Theater. Again, family obligations took me back home. And this time, I, Mr. Wilson... You know, blessed me to say, okay, I want you to go. So, yeah, this time he said that you can't go back. You're coming this time all the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, Radio Golf really centers around, you know, a lot of do we hold on to tradition and values, moral right and wrongs versus the gray areas in the thing. And in those battles, your characters definitely stand at opposite ends of the spectrum and you yes. get a face-off pretty well there at the end. <laughs> yeah, the face-off. The, the big face-off, you know. Um, August wrote that, um, I believe, so that we can start having dialogue about the word. I'm not going to say the word, but, you know, it's like we need to start having dialogue about how we truly feel, the, the, the Negroes versus the, the others. or And um, inside of that, these two characters go at it. It's not like he hate this guy. It's just the word that he used. These are the word, these, the, those words are words that if they was in private, outside of a, of a stage situation, they would be saying this to each other so that they can make sure that they get it. You got to get what I'm saying here because I feel this way. And the same thing about Roosevelt's character. He feel that way. But it's not like he said, I hate you, I hate all those type of people. It's just that at this time, this is how I see that group. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also a lot about uh, responsibility. Uh, once you become, once you get on that upwardly mobile path, uh, what is your responsibility to your community that you come up out of? You can't leave that behind. That's the responsibility that we have, I mean, as actors, uh, being somewhat successful. I, I know John has a, a big heart for reaching out for uh, ch school children, so do I. Just to give them the opportunity to be in the room with somebody who's been successful at their field, to let them know that it is possible that all the things that you hear in the classroom and all the people who tell you you can make it if you try, it's really true. Uh, and, and it's our responsibility to bring our skills back, our skill sets back to the neighborhood. I mean, imagine if Wall Street stockbrokers came back and did one day a year in a community center in the neighborhood teaching people how to invest their money. You know, that, and that doesn't take a lot. That doesn't take the putting on of the paint or anything <laughs> like, you know, it doesn't take all of that. It just takes being able to give one day out of 365 back to the community. The plot centers around basically the, an old house that's owned by Aunt Esther and a, a big land deal that's supposed to take place and a discovery that this house was actually you know, bought illegally without proper notice. So, you know, that's where a lot of the moral issues stem from. But then, uh, James, your character Roosevelt is dealing with the accusations of are, are you selling out by, you know, kissing up to the white man? And But one thing I really, I think it's important to point out is that actually I think the themes in the show are so universal where it's yes. around. A lot of people who aren't rich or powerful, you know, white people are sit and wonder, 
can they achieve success on their own terms, or do they have to sell out? Do they have to kiss up? Do they have to lose their soul in order to gain success? Yeah. And I, I definitely think that's a universal issue that this play touches on yeah. so well. And that's what I'm saying about the magic of this play, is that this play has something in it for everyone. Yeah. It doesn't really matter what, you know, what color you are. You know, we all going through these issues, you know, trying to hold on. In the inner city neighborhood, it's about gentrification. Yep. In uh, rural neighborhoods, in small town America. About losing it, your farm, probably. Yeah, yeah, you know, or Walmartization, where businesses go to the wayside because uh, corporate, you know, Walmarts come in and stores that have existed that have been building blocks of the community suddenly disappear. Yeah, the average moms and pop store. Now, you guys started on the show in the beginning with Yale, so what is it like building a play from the ground up with August Wilson? Unfortunately, <laughs> no. Unfortunately, you're the last ones we'll find out. Oh, well. Wow. Uh, well, I'll tell you this, you know, as he write it, you better get the lines right. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. That's, that's the first and foremost there. Uh, quick learning lines. Quick learning lines. I mean, they can put a page in that day. Mm-hmm. I've been in the rehearsal where I can see the panic in everyone's eyes. Like, we're not going to get this. This is not going to happen. This uh, this scene is not going to... But the magic of it, the way he writes, he writes specifically for your character. Mm-hmm. So once you just look at it and you go, well, my character is saying this. So great. So I can just take it in really quickly. But if you forget the lines... You throw off the whole rhythm, yes, rhythm, sir. the whole poetry of it, because every line count. He don't have, he don't write any throwaway lines. It's not a line you can just throw away. All. Yeah, he really is a poet. He doesn't yes. write for realism. He's more like a Shakespeare of his time, where he really packs each line very densely with so much meaning. And <laughs> how challenging is it to? Because his writing isn't really a naturalistic writing style. It is like very poetic and deep and layered and how how I, tough is that to dig into? I, 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 I gotta I gotta take issue with you on yeah. that. It, it, it is very realistic. It, I uh, realized one day when I was preparing to do two trains running because uh, I looked at the at, at the text and went oh my god this is just so dense and then uh, my stepmother owns a bar in St. Louis, Missouri and my father was, is the bartender there so I went and sat in that bar and listened the people in the bar spoke exactly like the repetitions. The uh, it, it, It's really a poetic way of speaking. What, what August did was August saw the beauty in the speech of the average African-American person who you drive past on the corner or he's standing out giving out flyers to the gym or something like that. And, and he realized the beauty in that and, and, and didn't try to shape it or change it, but added what he felt to that. And so it becomes that way. And that's the thing that I found out. I found out if you're trying to memorize these lines and you're trying to go word for word for word for word, you're in trouble. You'll be lost. But what you got to memorize is the thoughts and to relax and let go and understand that the things that I learned growing up combined with the things that I learned studying theater, if I just let go and, and, and be who I really am, that, that me that people tried to like 
change while I was in theater training programs. Like to, you can't, you don't supposed to talk like that. That don't supposed to go like that. Right. You know, you ain't supposed to talk like that. You ain't supposed to do this. You ain't supposed to do that. Uh, I, 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 I get the opportunity to use the, the other language. The, the the other language. The long curse words that get you thrown off of everything. And people keep coming up to me and going, "How do you say that like that?" And yeah, it's like you make it sound so nasty. You make it sound so nasty. You can make it sound however you want. And it's like, guys, I grew up. This that's straight from my childhood. That's yeah. straight from my upbringing. That's straight from being on the streets of St. Louis, Missouri. And right. you, I get to pull on all those things. And that's that's in the beauty. The, it, it's. It is really of the people, for the people, by the people, by, by Mr. Wilson. And you look at it, and it's a joy. It's a joy to get up there and perform. Most people, I think, hear of August Wilson as the revered artist, the Pulitzer Prize winner, the Tony winner, the, the hard taskmaster, the very serious thing. But I'm sure he had some, some lighter sides to it. I'm wondering if you have any favorite, more humorous moments that you spent with Mr. Wilson. Well, it goes back to writing the play when we was doing it at Yale. The last really big one is... Um, he put the scene in like a day before, and it was right before our first preview, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, I had all these lines I had to learn. Sterling had to tell Herman how he was wrong about um, that was Mr. Barlow's house, and it don't make sense where you tear down his house. That big scene. So, but when it got to that scene, I went blank. I didn't <laughs> remember not one line. I didn't. I could have made up something, but then that would have probably put me in a more, you know, deeper hole. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I just simply said, you're wrong, Herman. You're wrong, and you know you're wrong. And I'm thinking, okay, you, you know that's a cue for it. You guys to turn the lights off or go to dark or black or something. And I'm thinking, Mr. Wilson is in the audience. He's going to really get on me, man. He gonna, I'm probably going to lose a job behind this. This is what I'm thinking. <laughs> so I see him earlier. I mean, after the show is over, he's walking towards me. And he's got this big smile on his face. And he stopped in front of me and he go, you're wrong, Herman, you're wrong, man, you're wrong. And then he said, learn the lines, Joe. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, for me, I was uh, in the elevator at Yale, uh, uh, housing, and he came to me. This is podcast, right? So yeah. I, I, I can talk. You can talk. <laughs> okay. So he says to me, he says, when are you going to get that line right? And and it's like, oh, my God. Okay, what line am I screwing up so bad that August Wilson looks at me and says, when are you going to get that line right? I, 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 I said, what line? And he said, I felt like I had my dick in my hand and was waving it around like a club. And he, he acted it out and, like, grabbed his crotch. <laughs> and, and he looked at me and he said, you go thank me, man. You, you get a chance to say that on stage in front of women every night. <laughs> so, That's really good. You know, one thing for the audience member is a Broadway experience with this play. Um, I mean, this is a play that definitely lives and dies by the powerhouse of the acting force. But on Broadway, there's an amazing set that really uh, kind of illustrates the wow. dilapidation of the city around as the wow. offices clean, That's the buildings up. David Gallo is just brilliant. Yes, he is. He's brilliant. That's why he's been nominated for a Tony more than once, you know. But uh, he's brilliant. He knew what August wanted, and he put it in there. There's a little bit of all ten plays on that one set. 
If you come see this play ten times, you're gonna oh, you're gonna see something new. You're gonna go, oh, that's from the detail on the surrounding on the yeah. proscenium of the set itself is like so detailed yeah. that you, you you almost wish you had more time, time to be is, able to just study everything yeah. that's over there. They actually printed out a chart. In, yes, uh, Chicago Tribune, right? Was it Chicago? Tribune? Yeah, it was the Chicago Tribune about everything that was actually on that set, and it was like. Uh, it was like a treasure hunt, right? Yeah, you know and and it was funny because out of everything that they pointed out, yeah, somebody looked. Uh, I had a kid look up. And there's a plant on the set that I had never seen. I didn't see the horses one time, but go ahead. The, and, and the kid <laughs> looked up and said, "The plant, that's." It reminded him of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom for some reason. And you can just go in and you can find things. And mm-hmm. the, the the genius of David Gallo comes through. Remember when we started at Yale. Nobody had a script. Our first day of rehearsal, nobody had a script. David designed that set just having had conversations with August. And, and it, it was just amazing because you, you, yeah. you sat and looked and your mouth dropped open. It was like, oh, my God, I got to outact that set. <laughs> <laughs> and you do. You, and you did. You did. <laughs> so, how you feeling approaching the Tonys here? I'm trying not to be too nervous about it. I mean, the Tonys is about the best of the best. I'm happy because I've been recognized as being one of the best of the best of this year. You know, so I'll always be a class of something. So I'm a class of 2007. Um, I'm going to go and have some fun. I'm going to relax and I'm going to clap a lot and probably cry some and, you know, just have a a really good time. Everybody does a great job in the show, I tell you. The supporting, the three... "Quote unquote supporting actors." You guys got so much to dig your teeth into on this show. Man, thank you, man. I really, I really appreciate that because you know it's been a long road. You know what I mean? He trusted us to really take from the page and put it on the stage. Yeah. I mean, that's what I've been saying from the beginning. We get together in a circle, and I always say, "Well, from the page to the stage." That's what August Wilson wanted. I'm hoping that we're doing it every night, saying what he wrote with feeling, with truth. It's not just a job. I would have done this for free. Yeah, you know? but let's not tell nobody. <laughs> well, I must say, it seems like the show's quietly snuck on the Broadway stages, but there's a lion's roar happening on stage, and I, I hope audiences rush down to catch it. Thank you, man. So, I, yeah. And thanks so much for stopping down and sharing your experiences with us, because you got to get right over there and perform tonight. Yes, yes. We're on our way now. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Thank Been you. a pleasure. The Call Board. All right, last week I said we were probably going to give away tickets to Don't Quit Your Night Job and some CDs of High Fidelity, and what do you know? We did. But if you weren't registered on BroadwayBullet.com as an official user, you didn't hear about it. We're going to be having more contests coming up, so get there and register so you hear about them. In the meantime, the winners of the pair of tickets to Don't Quit Your Night Job are Alana Raider, Hallie Parsonette, Bryce Weinert, and Dimitri Russell. And for the High Fidelity cast recordings, we have as winners Johanna Meets of Waukee, Iowa, Ashley B. Erisman of Glenview, Illinois, Kay DeWitt of Tulsa, Oklahoma, Ryan Magnuson of Chicago, Illinois, and Brian Mahoney of Sherman Oaks, California. All right, congratulations, everybody, at your winnings. They'll be out shortly. Um, and we'll be emailing the winners of the night job tickets how to claim them. 
Okay, in other news, Stars in the Alley will take place in Schubert Alley on Wednesday, June 6th at 11 a.m. The free concert will feature performances and appearances by cast members from Broadway's most popular musicals and plays, including Tony Award winners and nominees. This year, for the first time ever, Broadway fans are invited to vote online for their favorite play and musical and enter to win a Night on Broadway. Yep, that's in quotations. They felt that was special. Prize package. So Max Crum and Laura Osnes, who will star in this summer's revival of Greece, will announce the winners. Also, June 11th will mark the kickoff of the first national Asian American Theater Festival. The festival will run through June 24th. Over 25 of the hottest, most cutting-edge Asian-American theater companies and performing artists are set to take part in this historic event. It will explore universal stories and the growing influence of Asian-American work in American culture. On June 11th and 18th at 9.30 p.m., the Duplex Cabaret Theater will host Standing Here, a benefit for Broadway Care's Equity Fights AIDS. The concerts will focus on new talent and new writers. It will include songs penned by Benj Pasek and Justin Paul, Larry Lees, Jonathan Reed Gilt, Michael Mahler, and Brian J. Tank. Concert goers will also hear tunes from Andrew Lippa's A Little Princess and Asphalt Beach and Marcy Heisler and Zena Goldrich's Ever After. All right, you got a listing that you think belongs on the call board? Just send me an email at thecallboard at broadwaybullet.com and we'll see about putting it on here. On the boards. A tribute to comedians past and present and a celebration of Jewish female comedians. The Jap Show is playing off-Broadway. And we're lucky to have with us creator and uh, comedian Corey Kahaney and another comedian, Jessica Kirsten, here with us to talk about the show. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? And I understand a lot of why you, you got the show together was from a lot of agents and people telling you to take the Jewish out of your comedy. Well, years ago, uh, when I was trying to get noticed by Hollywood, they said, you know, you got to get rid of the Jew. You know, you, you know, deliver me a Jew-free set and I'll take you to California. And I finally mastered that. And when I say Jew-free, I just mean I, there was no Jewish references. I, I slanted it New York and not Jewish. Um, the doors really did open for me. And I, 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 the funny thing is I, I got development deals and people were very interested in me. There's only so much you can do to hide it. And it starts to, you know, bleed out of you like chicken fat, your Jewishness. Mm. And uh, once they smelled it, <laughs> they sent me packing back to New York. Really, the, the short end of the story is the Jewish community has always really supported me. I've always performed for them, whether it was a, a Hadassah or, or a country club or a community center. And I thought, I'd like to create something for these people because clearly they are interested in what I have to say. That was the, the real just of it. Now, the show mixes like clips of past comedians and, of course, the four of you, the two of you here, and then two other lovely comedians on the show. How did you kind of go about organizing the show? How did you pick who you wanted to come into the show with you? And Well, as far as the live comedians, I, I just went for the strongest comedians in New York City. And, and the dead ones? And, well, the, <laughs> in terms of the dead ones, it was, uh, it, was, it was painstaking. I spent an inordinate number of hours listening to, you know, recordings and watching uh, tape day after day after day. And it was it was hard because, uh, you know, I'd find somebody's A bit, you know, a bit that was that was completely what they were famous for, but I couldn't put it in the show because it would be like a 20-minute bit. 
Jean Carroll was one of the most incredible comedians, and she has a whole bit about buying a fur coat, but it's 18 minutes. So it was really hard. I had to find everybody's best work. I had to find everybody's best two minutes. And, uh, I mean, it was a no-brainer in terms of Bell Barth and Pearl Williams because they were just beyond hilarious. So, uh, you know, they became one f- faction. And uh, Betty Walker did characters, and I wanted somebody who did characters, and she was also very famous in her own right. And uh, Jean Carroll was sort of the least known, but to me, the, the absolute best comedian of all times. And Toadie Fields was, you know an original. She was just so hilarious. And these women really paved the way for other women to do stand-up. And I, what I thought was really interesting was all of them were Jewish, with the exception of Moms Mabley in this era. It was all Jewish women that were actually doing stand-up in terms of for our gender, taking to the stage and, you know, grabbing the mic and telling jokes. And I thought, wow, that's, you know, that's something that, to be proud of. You know, that we've always been encouraged and invited and, uh, you know, allowed to be funny. And I thought that, you know, there's not that much to be proud of in terms of being a Jewish woman, you know, uh, but that, you know, that's pretty cool. Jessica, at what point did you get involved in the show and, and what was your process getting integrated in? Well, I work with Corey and and the other comedians, you know, in the city and um, and I really respect Corey's work and Corey and I, you know, she asked me to do it and I started doing it and I love working with her and I love working with the other comics and um, and I think it's a great project so I agreed to do it because I won't do something if I really don't you know, like it. I won't just take it just to take it for the money or for the credit or whatever. You know, Corey works... I, I do a lot of Jewish gigs, too, but not as many as Corey does. And she's a master at doing them. I mean, she's like every show, she just kills. And um, it took me a while to really learn how to work with that audience because it's very specific. Now, there seems to be an explosion of kind of ethnic and uh, religious-oriented you know, comedians and humor, not just within the respective groups, but a mainstream acceptance, I think, of these. Do you, what's your sense of maybe why? Well, I mean, I think there's no question Jews are hot. I mean, they're just really hot right now. Entourage last week, you know, did a whole episode that included uh, doing a business deal over Yom Kippur, which, I mean, Jessica and I could relate to that. We've seen that our whole lives. And, you know, Sarah Silverman is at the forefront hosting all kinds of big, high-profile events. So I, from where I'm sitting, it, it does seem like right now the door is open and they're very, you know, very receptive to Jewish humor and it's See, listen, I don't think it's just Jewish humor. I think mainstream's opening up to all sorts of different cultural and family things. I think maybe even like I think my big fat Greek wedding actually had a lot to do with exposing that a lot of these differences can be great points of fun to find out, but you still see the heart of what is similar about all of us in our mm-hmm. humanity. It seems like I see a lot more things, not just Jewish, but a lot more cultural identity things popping up, whereas I believe she was told, get rid of your Greek. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you. I second that. There's definitely a lot of uh, uh, encouragement for ethnic things. I just think I've noticed in the past six months, right now, everything Jewish is very hot. That's, you know, I mean, we we have a Jewish rapper. You know, there's a Hasidic guy doing rap. I mean, yes, it's... Ma'am. Is this at all audience interactive like a typical comedy gig might be, or is it definitely more of a staged presentation? I'll let you take that one. <laughs> well, I work with the audience a lot because I can't just perform to the audience. Like, I really like to use the audience. So it depends on the comic style. And we've been playing a little more with the audience, so it's been more fun. You know, like, if they're not laughing, Corey will be like, loosen up! Start the car! Yeah. <laughs> 
But Jessica, you know, Jessica is a complete, you know, she does an enormous amount of crowd work. She's, that's why we have her introduced to the audience, Tony Fields, because Tony Fields did, you know, did a ton of crowd work. And that, you know, that was, she couldn't really do her act without having an audience. It would be, it'd be boring as hell if you just stood there and did your act into a microphone. You well, it's funny because I do it a lot. And it's, uh, it's fine. Just a, a home? Into the microphone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my cat's there. Yeah, okay. But I bet you involved the cat. The other day she heckled me. Did she? Yeah, she went... <laughs> I'm curious maybe what are some of the funniest pieces that you let go from the show? There's a joke that I tried the other night that they wouldn't go for. Actually, Jessica helped me write the joke because I have a three-year-old and, and we're at the end stages of potty training. You know, I have two sisters. I have a, two, you know, my, a mother and a stepmother. I have a daughter. I've never been around boys. So I said to Jessica, I said, I just feel like I'm touching it too much with this body, you know, with the potty training. And she said, Corey, if it's in your mouth, you're touching it too much. <laughs> so I tried it on stage and they hated it. It was just too, you know, it was, I had crossed the line with, you know, sort of the respectful Jewish audience. Yeah, and I do like a 10-minute bet about Germany, and it doesn't work there. No. Yeah. <laughs> but Kathy Ladman talks a lot about Hitler, and they love it. It, it really depends on, like, where you come from in the bit. Yeah, well, like, she makes it very she funny. She makes it hilarious. She has very funny stuff. It's not. It's making fun of him. It's I mean, not, Ka- you know. Kathy does a whole bit about how she saw a documentary about Hitler and Eva Braun, and supposedly they had a great relationship. And she said, who was she dating before that that made Hitler you know, such a great guy. And she said, you know, she's in couples counseling with her wonderful husband from Minnesota. She said, but you know what? He's no Hitler. And, I mean, it's very funny. And they go with it. She she gets laughs. I don't. So, but Jews uh, are the ones that tell drunk. the most Hitler jokes. I mean, you know the famous one, right? The guy goes into a bar. He sees a man at the end of the bar, and it looks exactly like Hitler. And he sits at the bar, and he's looking, and he's looking. And finally, he can't take it anymore. And he goes over, and he goes, excuse me, are you Hitler? And the guy says, yes. And he says, oh, my God, what are you doing here? He said, well, I'm back. And this time, I'm going to get rid of all the Jews and all the chickens. And the guy says, what's wrong with chickens? He goes, see, nobody gives a shit about the Jews. <laughs> that's bad. But see, Jews, I, that's, I heard that at the Friars Club by a that's Jew. That's hysterical. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's, unfortunately, it is. But I, I think we don't tell the jokes because even if we're not German or had nothing to do over there, I still think there's this non-minority residual guilt, you know, that, you know. Oh, I think a lot of Jewish people tell jokes like that. I well, mean, that's, but you know. It's kind of like, you know. You know, the N-word, that black people feel that they can use it. And, you know, us non-minorities are stuck in this whole, like, minefield of, like, what's okay, what's funny, what's not. Whereas, I actually think that's maybe one reason why some of the ethnic and minority humor is coming through. Is because we don't know what's acceptable. And I think it's good to banish some of the demons of the past and some of the bad things with humor. Mm -hmm. But we're not the ones who can do that. Yeah, but you have to understand there's a big distinction between a good joke and something racist. What Michael Richard did on stage by just saying the N-word over and over again was not funny. No. The joke that I just told you, okay, maybe it rubs people the wrong way, but you got to give it up. There's a punchline at the end. And so I I always give it up if there's a punchline at the end. Does Does that make sense? Because I respect the formula of the joke. But you're a comedian, and you obviously appreciate yes. the the craft that goes into that. Yeah, joke. I mean, Sarah Silverman is is a case in point. I mean, she has a, a, a brilliant joke. She she looks at the audience. She goes, "I was raped by a doctor," which is so bittersweet for a Jewish girl. And a lot of people hate that joke. They don't care. There should never be a joke about rape. But it's hilarious. You know, it's hilarious. And it's also told from Sarah, who sets it up at the very beginning that she's, let's put it this way, less than 
Mother Teresa like. She's had a lot of sex. So you don't really know if it was truly a rape. You know what I mean? You know, what people walk away with is, my God, as a culture, we really do have humor down. And I'm not taking it away from, from you know, from the Gentiles, because there are some very funny Gentiles. Well, but, I can't but, think of but, any but, at this I also want to say that I, what I love is that people walk away from the show saying, wow, women are truly funny. You know, that's also part of it. They, they really see how funny women can be. A friend of mine who has been lamenting the fact that she doesn't know enough funny girls and she likes writing funny female parts, she just says she has a hard time finding women who are willing to look stupid. Find well, in comedy, whenever they do write in for a funny woman, she's usually, you know, she's usually a bimbo. I mean, it's usually a Pamela Anderson type with big boobs who's like, you know, very much... Oh, my God, like, that is so funny. Yeah. But or it's just it's it's very much like, um, you know, the Gene Wilder thing, you know, with uh, with Terry Garr. It's, you know, oh, but you you, you have such a big uh, hat. You know, are you happy to see me or is that a banana in your pocket? I mean, they always give it to these beautiful women who, um, you know, are just dumb. I don't think (laughs) I don't think they see that women can be smart and kind of, you know, I don't know, slobby. Well, the show sounds absolutely hysterical to watch. Now, there may actually be a few listeners out there who maybe need to... Do you want to explain what the Jap part of the Jap show means? It stands for Jewish American Princess. And, you know, typically the history around Jewish American Princesses was they were very spoiled and privileged and, you know, whiny. And it was a, it was a reputation that was... Uh, <laughs> and, and it was a label that was put on Jewish women. But the truth of the matter is we don't look at it that way. We look at it as the women that paved the way for us were these incredible, iconoclastic, great comedians, and we're the daughters of, of their legacy. You know, because Jewish women were allowed to be funny as a result of these women, so can we, and that's like our birthright. And, you know, so we're claiming it, you know, represent. <clears throat> and right now the Jap is currently set for an open run? I understand? It's, yeah, I think we're running through November at this point. So I always tell our listeners, don't, don't mean let an open run be an excuse to wait. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. Never take advantage and of And the good thing is we have this terrific show on Sundays at 5 o'clock, which is fantastic for the Jewish people or for the elderly. Because, because they have dinner at 3. They have dinner at 3. Or they can go to dinner at 7. And this Now, it's the early bird. It's 3 o'clock. <laughs> they share a sandwich. They come in. They take home the rolls. Right. They take home everything on the table. That's right. <laughs> and they say, wrap that up. It's for the help. No, they say it's filleta. These are the filleta rolls. These are the filleta danishes. They can go to thejapshow.com or they can go to, um, to Telecharge and uh, call Ask for the Jap Show. Well, Jessica and Corey, I thank you so much for coming down. <laughs> <laughs> and hacking for our listeners. You should live and be well. Positive side. Hey, this is Marty Cooper once again on the positive side. I decided this week I'm just going to do a few random thoughts since there's nothing specific happening right now. Next week, of course, is a few days before the Tonys and I'll have some views at that time. Once again, I'd like to remind you if you have any thoughts, if you have any opinions, if, if you want to hear certain things talked about, just uh, email me at broadwaymarty at aol.com. I appreciate anything. I need the letters. I need somebody to talk to, please. Anyway, I saw they were selling uh, tickets for Pirate Queen for uh, $35. I think that's kind of a good idea because uh, I speak to some of my customers and I say, just do yourself a favor and, and go see it. And the reaction is, oh, yeah, I hear it's, it's awful. 
I say from, who do you hear it's awful? Oh, they say it's awful. Well, now you can get tickets for $35, which is pittance, and go see it and form your own opinion. Another thing, uh, we were discussing uh, possible winners of, uh, of the Tonys a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it's becoming a popular opinion. I think Pop- Poppins is going to, I think it's going to steal the Tony from just about everyone else. I have the right to my own wrong opinion, right? (laughs) When I look at Spring Awakening and Grey Gardens, I feel they're both great shows, but they're small off-Broadway transfers. Uh, They're both dark. They're both very good. I'm not taking anything away from them, but I have a feeling they're going to cancel themselves out. And I feel that when you go see Poppins and you've spent $111, you see $111 in front of you. And that's kind of rewarding in this day and age where everything is kind of minimalistic. I think it's going to come out the winner. In fact, I've spoken to a couple of people in the Macintosh organization, and they say, really? I was at the Tony, was, uh, I think it was three years ago, was it? We heard the announcer say, and now for the best musical of the year. And uh, above the set at Radio City Music Hall, they flashed Wicked, except... The person on stage who read the winner didn't read Wicked. He read Avenue Q. If anyone has a tape of that old show, of the old Tony show, you can kind of stop the action when it gets to the winner, and you'll notice that Wicked was flashed upon the screen. Uh, So it was kind of a knee-jerk reaction by whoever was doing the lighting or the sets or whatever that that was the winner. So I maintain that I, I think Poppins is going to win the award. Some surprises as far as Tony Awards. Some actual disappointments or scratch-your-head moments from the Tony Awards. Like a few years back, contact winning for best musical. There wasn't live singing. There wasn't a live orchestra. There were only recordings. I mean, contact was a wonderful show, don't get me wrong. But it shouldn't have won best musical. It probably should have won a special Tony or... This year, I think this, in this day and age, they give an award for a special event or something to that effect. And I think that's what that should have won. Uh, in 1999, uh, I went to the Tonys rooting for Civil War because I like Frank Wildhorn stuff. It didn't win. Fosse won. I love the show Fosse, but it, hello, it was a review. It was wonderful and what it was doing. I think if Civil War didn't win, Parade should have. It was a grand, spectacular show. Depressing story. Depressing as all get out. But the music was fantastic. If you go back and listen to the album, you get my point. Grandiose in every way. How Prince's staging was unbelievable. That's my opinion on that year. I think it was 1999. Oh, a funny story about the Tony Awards. We were sitting next to a fellow a couple of years ago when Spamalette won for Best Musical and La Cage Fall won for Best Revival, there was a fellow sitting next to my wife and I. He had bet $450,000 on the Best Musical and Best Revival. And he bet on Light in the Piazza. In my opinion, that should have probably won the Best Musical. And he bet on Sweet Charity. He resists about faint when they gave the answers to both winners. Uh, found that a lot of fun. He must have been really rich if he's betting that much money. 
Well, possibly he was the producer of one of those shows, <laughs> feeling that if, uh, if they won, he'd be making out well. I think the most boring Tonys was uh, in 2002. I remember Mel Brooks winning one of his awards for the producers, gives a little speech and says, I'll see you in a few minutes. I don't think that should have swept everything. It won everything it was nominated for. I thought the show was very good, but not all that. I think next year we're going to have a similar thing with Xanadu. At least this year, almost everything's a mystery. To me, the only sure thing, I think, is Christine Ebersole. Uh, everything else is kind of up in the air when you think about it. We'll talk more on the Tonys next week. Once again, this is Marty Cooper. Stay on the positive side. On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony, online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway. You can always say, I found it at The Colony. Cabaret Corner. The joys of airline travel have uh, really uh, gone downhill over the past year, but... Uh, we have an artist who seemed to spot the trend quite a while ago and has been frequently putting up the musical around the world in a bad mood in New York and around the country. We have creator and actress Renee Foss with us, as well as another one of the actors in the program, Hector Chorus. How are you guys doing? We're great. We're in a good mood. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Not in a bad mood yet, because <laughs> we're on the ground. <laughs> So I guess kind of start off by telling us a little history of, of this, this show, and it's, it's kind of a different thing. Yeah, well, this is um, what I call, you know how there's reality TV? I call this reality theater or reality cabaret because um, I am a flight attendant, for real. I've been flying for 23 years, and uh, the way it kind of came to be was I really wanted to be an actress. My dad didn't like that idea so much. He wanted me to get a job with benefits and a pension, and... I took his advice and I became a flight attendant. I was based in New York, and then I discovered that maybe I could be a flight attendant half the time, keep my dad happy, and then I could be an actress the rest of my life, and then I'd be discovered and be famous, and I could quit the airline. And that's not quite what happened. In fact, I was like a huge failure, and I decided that um, the only way to make it in show business for me would be to write my own show. So um, I decided to write what I know, which is really about being a flight attendant. So that's how I kind of came up with the idea. And I thought I would make myself the star of the show. And then I realized that I would need some help. Nepotism, nepotism. Yeah. <laughs> so I enlisted some um, wonderful actors, one of whom is here with me, Hector Chorus. And maybe Hector can talk a little bit about um, you know, his experience and how he came on to the, the five-person show. Uh, yeah, Renee initially, initially had uh, a couple actresses in the show, and um, one of the actors had to leave, and they called me up and said, do you want to do this weird little show in the village? And I said, sure, send me the script, and I'll, I'll come down and do it. And Everybody wants to do weird little shows in the village. Weird little shows in the village. And it, it's done down at Rose's Turn, which has been one of my haunts for many, many years, so I, of course, said yes. And um, we, I've been very fortunate in this show because I think it's an actor's dream because I get to do everything under the kitchen sink from uh, playing in drag to singing my ass off and um, to uh, doing these really wacky sketches and characters. I mean, the show is a whirlwind. It flies by, a lot of costume changes, and I've also been fortunate to go with the show to Seattle and Dallas, and mm -hmm. where else have we gone? And Canada. Canada, that's right. We did a great gig in Canada and, and one fateful performance at a Jewish center up in Muncie, New York. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we've had a lot of fun. We have really gone um, on some traveling expeditions with the show. And Hector, um, Hector has got a great part because he gets to play um, Mona Lot. 
the <laughs> unhappy, bitchy flight attendant. And um, Hector has created this character. She's German, and um, she wears a dress and some lipstick and an eye patch. <laughs> you really have to see it. You have to come down to uh, Rose's turn and see Hector as Mona Lot to believe it. It's a sight to behold. <laughs> now, I understand uh, you guys are going to perform a couple numbers here for us. Maybe we should do the first song. And your composer, Michael McFrederick, is going to be playing piano here for you. Right. Anything we need to know about this first song? Well, I think this first song is called the Safety Demo Shuffle, and it's very recognizable to anyone who has flown, if you've been paying attention like you're supposed to, because this is the um, part in the flight where we point out the emergency exits and the seatbelts and all that sort of thing. And I've just noticed in my own experience as a flight attendant that most people during this time you know, are reading the paper, sleeping, and they're not really paying attention. So it occurred to me that maybe if we did a song and dance with the safety demo shuffle, people would really pay attention. And then the FAA would be very happy because everyone would be very well informed about their uh, safety positions in the event, and the unlikely event of an emergency. Safety demo shuffle, safety demo shuffle, safety demo shuffle, a one, a two, and you know what to do. Never ever travel by car. This is your seatbelt, please know where they are. Too fast in the belt, just pull till it's tight. And don't let go till the end of the flight. This is for safety, especially yours. Pay close attention as we point out the doors. Please keep in mind this airport has eight. They all have slides and we hope they inflate. If we have to get out, there won't be too much time. So head for the door and follow in line. Should the cabin lose pressure, place this mask on your nose. When the plane leaves the ground, just sit back and doze. Doodly 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 do. Woo! If we have a water evacuation, use your tushy cushy for your flotation. Pull up and remove and hold to your chest. Dive in the water and hope for the best. Humor reminders and off on our way. No smoking. No joking. No meals today. Thank, Thank you for flying. We hope to arrive. If you want to get there faster. If you want to get there sooner. If you just want to get there. Why don't you drive? We do. You know, I found that by wearing earbuds on my iPod that they don't notice I'm wearing them, especially with my hair covering it, and I, I get to ignore the flight thing. I want to... Oh, you're a bad passenger. <laughs> it hasn't changed in 10 years. Oh, I know to grab the seat. It's on that right. handy-dandy double-sided thing anyway that laminated Right. Oh, I'm going to keep my eye out for you on my flights. <laughs> no free drinks for you. This musical has multiple incarnations because you do it here in New York and it's been a five-person show and then you go out on the road and it's a one-person show and now I guess it's a three-person show. So, <laughs> so what is this elastic nature of Budget cuts. Uh, Around the World in a Bad Mood? Budget cuts. Um, well, basically, I always wanted it to be, you know, a big, splashy musical. Um, and that's what I was going for when I sort of initially produced it and put it up at Rose's turn. But um, I've heard an assistant for Cameron McIntosh listens to the programs. Oh, good. Well, I hope he's listening to this program because I <laughs> use all the help I can get. Um, in any event, it, it did start out at this five-person musical, and I would have to, you know, give these guys like a dollar a show because that's about all the money that I was making. Nice. And that covers uh, transportation and food. That's the uh, equity thing. Ba right? Yeah, basically. It's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Barely. Um, 
Anyway, what had happened was the New York Times was writing a big piece on flight attendants. And they got wind of the show, and they asked, they called and said, we'd like to come down and, and see around the world in a bad mood, and could we take some photographs? And I said, well, of course, you know, come on down, bring, bring five photographers. So the New York Times came to see the show. They wrote a story about it. It was sort of a companion piece to this big, huge thing on flight attendants. And from there, everything really just blew apart because after that, uh, you know, like, Rosie, the Rosie show was calling and CNN was calling and people were calling to book the show and people were calling to come and see the show. And one of the people that called was Hyperion Publishing. And they thought it would be, would be a book. They said, would you like to write a book? And at the time, I didn't even know who Hyperion Publishing was. It's, it's Disney, so I'm kind of an idiot, but um, I know who they are now. Oh, I think we have a producer for Disney. Good. Yeah, well, well, hello. Welcome aboard. <laughs> thanks for the book. Yeah, thanks for the book. I love Hyperion. I know who they are now. Love Mickey Mouse. Um, but in any case, they thought it would be a good book, so I said, sure, you know, I'd love to write a book. Um, and from that, after the book was published, a producer here in New York approached me, Richard Frankel uh, Productions. Actually, his partner, Mark Routh, um, thought this will be like a terrific little touring show. But the condition was, as there always is, there's always a condition in life, that it would have to be a one-person show. Boo. So, boo. Yeah. So Hector stays home. Yeah, so I Hector was... Out. Um, I took the opportunity, though, because I thought, you know, I could write a one-woman show, maybe perform, and it could be a big, huge flop, and then I'd have to get Hector back on my good side again, <laughs> so, among the other actors as well. But anyway, the um, Frankel office produced it as a one-person show, and it premiered at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in Scotland in uh, mm -mm, 2002, I think, was, and it was one of those years. So um, I did perform it as a one-woman show, and I still do, and I perform it around the country. I'm going to be going to Salt Lake City in October. I'll be in Phoenix in January 2008. I'll be in Chicago in February. So when it goes out on the road, it is a one-woman show indeed. It's a little bit different um, than when I perform it here in New York um, at Rose's Turn, like we'll be doing this summer, and that's my three-person show now. So there's kind of, you know, it just depends. It's like, it's like a flight. You know, sometimes you have five flight attendants. Sometimes you have three flight attendants. It's depending on where I am. Yeah, I think the great thing that Renee did was there's so much material that has gone in and come out. So we're able to, we had a four-person show at one point. Went from five to four to three to one to back to three. Right. And we just have, let's do this. Let's put this scene in, that scene in. Let's cut that scene. Let's do that scene. So we have a whole mishmash of things we can do depending on how many people we have. Right, because, you know, the thing with actors is they're not always available. What? Uh, yeah, it's hard to imagine. <laughs> There's only like 5 or 6% of them actually working at a time, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing that when you really have like a booking somewhere, somebody is always like not available, can't do it that day. The hardest thing about the show right now is just like scheduling people, just to get them for rehearsals and get them together to perform. So... What, what I got my gig at Outback? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I'm busy that night at Fridays. <laughs> yeah, so um, so it's good to be flexible. And the other thing that's great about the show is it it does change sort of based on what's going on in the world. You know, like, as you may well know, now you can't bring liquids on airplanes. So then there just becomes a whole that plethora of material. That has made me say I'm not going on a plane. I just... Uh, really? Yeah, that's well, what kind ridiculous. Of well, what kind of liquids do you like to bring? Uh, KY? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> KY and Jack Daniels. Everyone's going to have that you travel You can't go on an airplane without that. <laughs> <laughs> just water. It just seems so ridiculous. Yes. At a certain point, isn't enough enough? Yeah. yeah. I mean, if somebody really wants to do something, they're going to be able right. to. Right. Absolutely. Know? I agree. You just... 
Ugh, I know, and people are still. You know, I saw this skit about the, you know they're going to create ninja airlines. Somebody comes and like knocks you out in your sleep, and you like wake up across the country, and that's. Oh, that'd be the kind of flight I'd like to board. <laughs> yes. I'd like to be working that flight. All those people <laughs> passed out all the way to L.A. I wouldn't have to do anything. No service. Well, uh, do you guys and Michael want to do the next song here? Sure. The next song is the title song, Around the World in a Bad Mood. And it is just sort of the, uh, oh, it just encompasses the whole travel experience of the modern day traveler, I would say. So remember, flight attendants are on board the aircraft to save your ass, not kiss it. JFK to O'Hare, Fresno, Fargo, Eau Claire, Memphis, L.A., down to Birmingham. All in a day, every step of the way, around the world in a bad mood. Instead of seeing the world and all of its sights, I'm picking up trash and breaking up fights. Hoping to God there's some leftover booze around the world in a bad mood. Are crowded, the people are rude. The lines never ending, wear sensible shoes. Carry a baggage, not work but it weighs. Over so flights and weather delays. Goddamn weather delays. No need to be Sometimes they last for days. I got bumped off eight flights. I've been here three nights. Trying to get home from Timbuktu. I slept on the floor. I can't take no more. Around the world in a bad mood. I'm hoping to God I can find a quail. Around the world in a bad mood. Whatever I do, I always get screwed. Around the world in a bad mood. All right, Renee, you said 23 years as a flight attendant. Yeah, I started when I was five. Yeah, it looks like it, I was going to say, because <laughs> you look far too young to have done that. But Thank how many you. flights does that translate to? Uh, too many. Far too many. I don't know. I usually go um, on a trip every week. Um, sometimes it's a two-day trip, three-day trip. In the course of my career, I've, uh, I've mostly been based in New York, but um, I used to do a lot of Asia, flights to Asia. We would, like, leave here on Friday go over to Tokyo, stay 24 hours, and then come back. I mean, you'd, you'd ca cross the international dateline like two times in three days, and then you have a couple days off and you go do it again. That was a little exhausting. Um, did a lot of Europe flying. Primarily now I just like to do stay in the United States. It's easier. How do we get an extra bag of chips? Um, well, it's going to cost you. <laughs> you know, we, all the flight attendants, we've all taken big pay cuts. So if you, you know, if you've got some cash to flash around, you might even be able to get more than a bag of chips. <laughs> How do we get the meal while it's still hot? What meal? <laughs> <laughs> there is no meal. <laughs> what are, you really haven't flown in a while. Yeah, yeah. You have a rude awakening next time you go wow. on a plane. <laughs> Don't ask for a pillow either. <laughs> Do you ever worry at 23 years now? Is it like placing odds? Do you worry your numbers up? That <laughs> well, keep crossing that dateline a couple more times. You should be able to go up. back a couple of years. I think my number is up. Um, now, you mean like, am I afraid to fly? Yeah, I mean, yeah, um, I mean well, you know, we know statistically it's safer than car travel, but at a certain point, don't you think, oh, I've done this many flights without an accident? Uh, uh, yeah, you know, I really, I don't even, I never really think about it. 
Um, I, I've I now just, made you think about it. Yeah, Wait no, a minute. I've set oh, the alarm. Now I'm going to be thinking about it when I go to Alaska <laughs> yeah, on nice. Sunday. That's, that's, that'll be about the first thing I'm thinking. Um, I don't think about it. You know, like, I'm sort of a believer, like, when your number's up, your number's up. I just hope that the pilot's number isn't up. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. No, I don't think about that. Really, it's like uh, when you come to work, do you take the subway to work? Yeah. Okay, do you ever worry when you get on the subway, like, gosh, I hope that they're not going to gas the subway oh, today? Oh, God, after 9-11, <laughs> I experimented with taking the bus down from 181st Street. and uh, Forget it. Yeah, two days of that, and I was like, right. okay, I guess I'm just going to have to live with the, the, right. the, the, the anthrax. <laughs> yeah, it's just like that's the way I feel, too. It's, um, it's my job. I do it. Um, there's a lot of other things that I worry about before that. I mean, I'm just worried that someone's going to puke on me or, you know, someone's going to give me some kind of communicable disease. I just uh, some passenger is going to flip out. Someone's going to write a bad letter. I mean, there's so many things I can worry about prior to, you know, the Big Bang. <laughs> what do you do when you catch people joining the Mile High Club? Well, I ask if I can watch. <laughs> <laughs> What do you do? <laughs> You're the one with the KY jelly. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm just uh, just an innocent bystander needing to use the lavatory. Come on, knock, 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 hurry up. Does that happen often? Um, well, it, I, apparently it does because everybody always asks me about it. But I have to confess, I've never really, like, you know, walked in and, and caught anybody. Um, I have walked in, though, for people. Some people forget to lock the door, you know, and I have I've witnessed that, which is, you know, that'll wake you up. I've always wondered how they... There's not enough room for one person in that room. Right. I, you know what I think? Mostly what it is. <laughs> Tell I did, us how. I, Give us a tutorial. Do you want me to show you? Oh, I can't show you. That won't work. This is in TV. Okay, I guess you won't get to see. You have to come to the show and see around the world in a bad way. Oh, is live. this part of yeah. the show? Well, All there right. might be, um, depending on who's in the audience. Um, I wouldn't mind a scene like that. I have seen people, two people come out of the bathroom. So I'm just, I don't know what they were doing in the bathroom, a man and a woman, but it leads me to believe they were joining the Mile High Club. And I know a lot of people, now there's a new, whole new thing. We, sometimes the line is too long to get into the bathroom. So it's called the Solo Mile High Club, and it's just in the seat, and we just throw a blanket over those people, you know, and just let them have their jollies. <laughs> That's for the people who don't want to wait in line <laughs> and can't find a partner. <laughs> and uh, because we've been spending so much time with Renee, we should have announced that, yes. uh, Hector, you, on the other hand, work within oh. the industry, correct? Yes, I'm the director of marketing at Second Stage Theater. I've uh, been there for two years, and uh, it's been great. We do really decent shows there. Um, we just closed uh, Terrence McNally's Some Men, and we're coming We've up talked on... talked about them. We've had some spelling bee stuff, which That's you guys... right. Second stage is all over the Broadway Bullet. And it's right across the street, too. And it's right across the street, which is very convenient. Um, uh, and we have uh, several roles you were to see coming up. Uh, yes, May are you going to help me get her on the show? Because she's so hot and busy. But... I would love to, yeah. I would definitely let her know. So we got to get all the information out here of, uh, you know, the website. And, I mean, especially since it's going to be touring all over, probably just give the most general information possible and you know, okay. let people well, find Okay, I'll it. start with the, the basic and the most, um, the easiest way to probably get information is aroundtheworldinabadmood.com. That has a schedule. Um, if you can, you know, remember around the world, it's just aroundtheworldinabadmood.com. The next performances are going to be here in New York City at Rose's Turn, uh, 55 Grove Street. We're going to play every Thursday at 9 o'clock. $15 cover charge, two drink minimum, and cash only. And then we'll be back at Rose's Turn in September on Fridays at 7 o'clock. And um, as I said, then in, in October at Salt Lake City. 
um, at the Rose Wagner Performing Arts Center. Um, I'm going to Phoenix in January for two weeks. That's at the Mesa Arts Center. And then um, outside of Chicago in a town called Crystal Lake at the Rouse Center for the Performing Arts. Have you ever thought about putting this on at, like, bar airports? You know, a lot of people wait. <laughs> I put it on in the back galley to a select <laughs> audience. Uh, yeah. No, I don't think the... Well, you know, that's where I'm really just taking my notes. That's where I get the material. You know, a lot of people say, when are you going to quit the airline? And I'm like, quit the airline? What are you kidding? This is how I get my material. If I quit the airline, there won't be a show. <laughs> Aside from that, I've given them the best years of my life. And now I plan to stick around and give them the worst. <laughs> well, I'm not I, leaving. <laughs> I thank you two so much for coming down and sharing your stories. And, uh, and Michael McFrederick for joining you on the piano and sharing these great songs. And best of luck with the run. And it's... Uh, Continued return to New York. Thank Great. you. Thank you. Safe travels. Top of the trades. Executive producers Glenn Weiss and Ricky Kirshner have announced the musical performances for the 2007 Tony Awards. The telecast will feature musical numbers from each of the four best musical nominees, Curtains, Grey Gardens, Mary Poppins, and Spring Awakening, as well as from Company 110 in the Shade and A Chorus Line, the three nominees for Best Musical Revival that are still currently running. Additionally, the show will feature a special performance by... Because what is a talent competition, I mean, or, or award show without an American Idol <laughs> contestant? A performance by Fantasia Barano, who is now appearing on Broadway in the color purple. The Tonys will be telecast on CBS Live from Radio City Music Hall on Sunday, June 10th. Variety reports that HBO might be bringing the one-woman play, The Year of Magical Thinking, to the small screen. The Year of Magical Thinking is currently on Broadway, starring Vanessa Redgrave, whose performance recently won a Drama Desk Award and has been nominated for a Tony. An air date has not yet been announced, but a deal is currently in negotiations for the project. The play is based on Joan Didion's best-selling memoir of the same title. It follows the author as she reflects on the sudden death of her husband of 40 years and the grave illness of her only child. According to the New York Times, former artistic director of the Public Theater and Tony-winning director George C. Wolfe will helm the upcoming Warner Brothers film, Nights in Rodanth, based on the novel by Nicholas Sparks. The film will star Diane Lane, Richard Gere, Law & Order SVU's Christopher Maloney, and James Franco. Gere will play a doctor who stops in a beach town in North Carolina to reconcile with his estranged son. During his time there, he becomes involved in a life-changing romance with an unhappily married woman played by Diane Lane. Isn't that what Diane always plays, unhappily married women or unhappily unmarried women? Anyway, Maloney will play Lane's husband, and Franco will play Gear's estranged son. Saturday Night Live star Daryl Hammond will make his Broadway debut this summer when he assumes the role of Vice Principal Douglas Panch in the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. Hammond has been a regular SNL cast member for 12 seasons and is known for his impersonations of Regis Philbin, Jesse Jackson, Bill Clinton, Dick Cheney, Al Gore, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and more, as well as being known as that one guy who can't get a movie deal. Hammond will be replacing current star, The Daily Show's Mo Rocca, who departs on June 10th and will play his stint from June 12th until July 19th. Whew! These long, long stretches these TV stars are doing. Whew! How do they manage? In a recent interview on The Strips podcast, Mel Brooks told interviewer Steve Freiss that his upcoming musical, Young Frankenstein, will likely open at the Hilton Theater sometime around Halloween this year. He said that it's a very family-oriented show and confirmed the rumored casting of Megan Mullally, Roger Bart, and Christopher Fitzgerald. He's almost certain that Andrea Martin will join the cast. 
Young Frankenstein is based on the 1974 film of the same name and will feature 18 songs by composer extraordinaire Mel Brooks. It will play an out-of-town tryout in Seattle this August before coming to Broadway and dominating all. Top of the Trades is brought to you by BroadwayWorld.com. Check out Broadway World for all the latest in theater news and for some great theater community and message boards. I'll be back next week with all the top theater stories in Top of the Trades. Curtain Call. All right, next week we're going to have some very special surprises. I don't want to say the names in case one or two of them back out, but we have a lot of Tony nominees lined up for uh, some in-depth one-on-one interviews next week. Uh, it's great. I'm great. going to be talking to some very exciting people, both on stage and behind the scenes. Uh, you're just going to have to tune in and see what it is. Uh, there's even a chance it might be an overstuffed episode. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> Well, I am your host, Michael Gilbo, and I will be back next week. And until then, thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. The Broadway Bullet! It's a thrilling moment. We're starved, so shouldn't audition come up? We are so ready and raring. So, Jake Kowski says my name, and I'm in the can. It's actually, the Barfay thing comes from my whole life. People just go into vulture, so it didn't take much though when proposed. Um, yeah. Unpackage those things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world, You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.